If you will turn, please, to Romans in chapter 2. Romans in chapter 2, please. The long reading this morning. I won't talk about everything I read, but uh, it will be before you. You'll find it on an insert, or we've been able to put our pew Bibles back, so there are pew Bibles there as well, uh, or I trust you have your own with you. But uh, Romans in chapter 2. And as we come to this passage, you'll find in the bulletin, or I trust up on the screen, a um, prayer of illumination, that is, a prayer to help us, uh, that we plead with God to open our eyes to enable us to see his truth. So this is a prayer that uh, as we come to the scripture, we can pray together. So let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing to your majesty through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Romans and chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, un, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And since I'm on a roll, let me just add a few more verses. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, this passage that I have read um, finds its um, penultimate conclusion, not its final conclusion, but the conclusion before the conclusion. Um, in verse 10, for instance, that none is righteous, no, not one. Or verse 20 for by the, of chapter 3, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Its ultimate conclusion is in those last two verses that I read. um, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, he's taking us to the fact that we're justified by faith, not by our works. Um, That's consistent with the gospel that he laid out in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so we see that this righteousness that we have is a gift. It's given to us. Uh, It isn't something that we've earned or something inherent within us. Uh, In fact, the opposite is true. And that's what he's showing in these verses up until those verses in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. He's discussing with us the judgment of God. Now, I I may ask the question, so why are we doing this? Why are we going through such passages about the judgment of God? The answer is because it's in the Bible. And we smile at that, but we we need 
tests. So, so why is it in the Bible? Why is it true? For whatever reason, of late, uh, I've been either attending or officiating funerals. And one of the things that's dawned on me again, I would say, in the midst of these, is that to give us hope, people often create narratives in their minds about God, about death, about what it means to live or life after death. And, and narratives are, are sort of created by people. Some, some would say, well, there isn't any God, so there's nothing to worry about. That's other complications. But the sense that we don't have to worry about judgment because there is no God. And so, oh, I can live with that. Uh, other people might say, well, you really can't know if there's a God or not or what he's like. So I guess we're all in the same boat. So I don't need to worry about it any more than you need to worry about it because worrying about it won't help because we simply can't know. Others say, there is a God and he's good and he forgives, thus I don't need to worry because I'm forgiven, if God forgives. There are others that say, well, well, I don't need to worry because as I look around, I'm actually better than most. And since I'm better than most, then surely I'll be fine. And the, the, the question that comes to me amongst these narratives and, and countless others throughout history that people have devised is the question, well, is your narrative really true? Because if it isn't, then what good is it? And so we come to the Bible because it's the word of God. It's God-breathed. Now I'm in the time to lay out why we think that that's true. It's certainly the claim of the Bible that it's God-breathed. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that it's God-breathed, that it's God's word to us. We find that, that, that same testimony about the Bible, in the Bible, all over the place. Uh, Jesus affirmed it. That's why we ultimately hold to it. And he gave us reason to believe that the New Testament would be such as the Old Testament, that is, under the power of the Holy Spirit working through those God would choose to write. But we come to the Bible because we want to hear what God has to say about life. We want to hear what God has to say about himself. What he has God has to say about us. And, and so that's why we're doing this. We're marching through these passages because we want to know what God thinks. And not only that, we want to know what God thinks we should think. And so if it's in the Bible, then God must think we ought to think it. And we have to know this. And so it's important for us to come to these passages to know what we should really think. And so really the goal for this morning is, it's, it's a simple one. I suppose it has different pieces to it, but simple pieces, I would say. And that is, if, if you've yet to trust Christ, then these verses, this passage, is to enable you to see your helplessness, your hopelessness, and your need for Christ and the righteousness that's through him. And if you've already believed, and you really do believe, then, then you should be happy about that. You should, you should read this and actually feel grateful and, 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 and to worship. And I hope, too, it gives to us, as a company of people, a real burden for those who don't know this. A real burden who don't know the truth or are living in a false narrative. And this, I pray, will enable us to pray for them and to think through how we can 
provide for them the true narrative. It's really true. And then I trust. <laughs> it'll have the effect that Paul wants it to have on the church in Rome, and that is, first of all, that it will humble them so they'll realize they're no better than anyone else. Not above or below, but all stand before God in the same way. And then, secondly, to give us hope, because we see that apart from Christ, we're hopeless. But in him, uh, we have of hope. Paul, Paul, Paul knew this himself. That's why in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, I'm under obligation, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both of the wise and the foolish. And that is, that, that he, he's under this, this, this obligation to them to share his gospel because he's been entrusted with it. We've been entrusted with it. He was entrusted with it. He had a special call. We don't have the same call he did, but we have a call still yet as the church. And, and so uh, he says, I, I, I know what's true. And so it gives me this Obligations. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Even to Christians, he wants to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because he wants them to give assurance. He wants to give them hope. Um, he wants to humble them so that they'll be united together. And, um, and so he comes to lay out this gospel. And as I mentioned in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he lays out the gospel and he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then as soon as he lays that out, where does he go? He goes right to the fact that not only at the same time that, that the righteousness of God is revealed, but also the wrath of God is revealed as well. That is the judgment of God against our sin. And he begins in these, you might remember in the latter section of chapter 1, he lays out the fact this wrath of God is being revealed presently, not in its fullness, a day will come. That's where he gets into chapter two. A day of judgment will come. But he says it, it even happens generation and by generation in history that the wrath of God is, is revealed. And you have to ask the question, or at least Paul invites us to ask the question given what he talks about. Is this really fair? Is this really fair of God? to pour out his, his wrath upon us, his judgment upon us. And Paul, as you might suspect, is going to answer, yes, it is fair. And so he begins with those who have no real direct, if you will, a specific revelation of God, but just this general revelation of God. And, and he says it comes in creation. And he said creation is such that it should cause us to fall on our knees and to worship God. Because in it, God has revealed his eternal power and even his divine nature. And he says, we can't see that, not because it isn't clear, but because of our sin, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And rather than worship God, we worship the creation. Rather than worship God, we worship creatures of our own making, even in our own minds. We come up with these idols, things we put in the place of God to serve, uh, to define us and direct us and delight in. And he says, when that happens, the wrath of God is poured out in such a way that he gives us over to our own passions, our own devices, our own ways. And everything is disordered then because our worship is disordered, our lives are disordered, our passions are disordered, our relationships are disordered. He says, that's the wrath of God. And he said, and depravity even grows deeper in the midst of that because not only do we practice these things, but, but we approve of others who practice them as well. So we joined and invite others to join us 
in this rebellion against God. There's a sense in which Paul says, look out your window, don't you see it? Look in your own heart, don't you see it? And he says, what about those who don't approve of what all these others are doing? And Paul says, well, if that's the case, if you see what others are doing, and it's wrong, and you don't approve of it, then you've just judged yourself. Because you said that's wrong, and yet you do it yourself. Hmm. And not only that, he says, you rather are going through life, doing that which is wrong, thinking that you're right, because you don't approve when others do it. You just can't see it when you do it. And then you presume on the kindness of God. Your life is going fine, and instead of you looking at your life and repenting and turning to him, you just simply march on as if everything's fine. And you know, it isn't. And so you're just storing up for yourself, for that day, the wrath of God. So it's fair, you see. And it's fair and just, too, because he judge everyone according to their works. He's, he's, he's not partial at all. And you say, well, how anybody can, can, can obey in such a way that God would, God would approve of them? And, and the answer, of course, is you're right, they can't. But the only way that our works can help us is that they come from faith, that we trust him and that our lives are changed in such a way that, no, that we're no longer self-seeking, but seeking his glory. No longer seeking the uh, uh, praise that comes from people, but the honor that comes from God. So, oh, all right. And he says, you know, God isn't partial. Uh, that comes from a Hebrew idiom, really, of, of a, a lifting of the head. It's, it's as if everyone is, is standing or, or in, in some posture before God, and they're standing there before God with their heads down. And, 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 and what this means is God isn't going to go up and lift up their head and go, oh, I like the way you look, I'll take you. No, no, he's impartial. He judges impartiality. But, but it seems, I suspect, especially in those days, it would seem that he did judge with some partiality because in the church in Rome, there were two groups of people, group people in a variety of ways, but the way Paul grouped them was Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles. And, um, and, and, and it seemed throughout history, at least up until that point, God is fairly partial to the Jews. I mean, he called Abraham, and he made promises to Abraham's people, all those who would come after him. He gave them this covenant and covenant signs, and they were his people who used to be their God. He gave them land and all of that. Now, there were difficulties in the midst of that, but, but it seems like he was rather partial to this one group as opposed to everyone else. He says, when it comes to judgment, however, that isn't the case. Verse 13, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So you can see, those who are without the law, the Greeks and the Gentiles, those who have the law. And he says, if you don't have the law, you'll perish, which is a word for being judged to hell, really. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And why is that, especially the latter? For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, Paul's saying, 
just because you have it doesn't mean that you're okay. You have it so that you can do it. And the difficulty is that you don't. So you can't just hold up the law and say, but we're people of the law. That's great. The question is, the question he had for them, do you do do it? The verdict was, you don't. So verse 14 then. For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts where their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by by Christ Jesus. He says, listen, if, if you have the law, it will condemn you. And why is that? We remember Jesus' summary of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How you doing with that? How you loving God? I mean, are you loving him in such a way that everything that you do is with him in mind? Everything that you do is for his glory. That's the way we love him. We honor him as God and we give him thanks. Are you doing with that? And then to love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever thought about that? As yourself. Love your neighbor as if your neighbor were you. So your neighbor's interests are as important to you as your own interests. Your neighbor's pain is the same as your own pain. You'd respond to your neighbor's pain in exactly the same way that you respond to your own pain or, or your neighbor's sorrow, your, own, your neighbor's needs, that you respond to your neighbor just as you respond to your own pain and your own needs. Who's like that? And then Jesus doesn't really help us in this matter because he says, all right, how about this? Love one another as I've loved you. That even ups the ante on that one. You sin under the law, you'll be judged by it. But what if you don't have the law? Well, he, he talks about that with the Gentiles. How, how, can you, how can you hold someone accountable to a law they don't have? And he says, all right, let's do it this way. As a human being created in the image of God, Although that image has been broken in various ways, still you have this moral conscience about you. You have a certain sense of right and wrong. And you realize that you can't even obey your own standards. You have the work of the law, the requirements of the law on your hearts. Now when Paul uses that expression, if you're a Bible reader and you hear the law written on your hearts, especially if you're uh, one of the women in our church who's just gone through the prophet study. You'll jump to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, where in the new covenant, the promise is that God will write his law upon our hearts. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When Jeremiah talks about writing the law, God writing his law on our hearts, he's meaning that he's going to change our hearts, to change our inclinations, so that we not only know this law, but we love it. Uh, that's 
Jeremiah's way of saying what Ezekiel says. When Ezekiel says, he'll take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, uh, that's Jeremiah's way of saying what Jesus says, that you must be born again, that you can be given this new life, a change of heart. Or what Paul says when he says that we're new creatures in Christ. This is simply saying that as human beings, we have this moral sense this sense of right and wrong. And, and it, it, it's perverted at times, of course. And it's not as sharp as it should be. But it's there. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity um, even begins his primary lecture, his first lecture this way. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny. And sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds... I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things people say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if someone did that to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Or leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Or why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, forget about your standard. Nearly always, he tries to make out uh, that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there's some special excuse. He pretends there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different uh, when he was given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule or of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agree. He's parroting the Apostle Paul, saying, even if we don't have the law, we know something of it. We know what's required of us, how we're to live with one another. And Paul says, that very thing will condemn you as well. Because even even though we have this understanding of the requirements of the law, we don't Keep it. And in fact, he says that we have conflicting thoughts that accuse or even excuse. Sometimes our conscience accuses us. Sometimes it excuses us. And if we really examine it, sometimes when our conscience excuses us, it really ought to accuse us. It just doesn't have the courage to. Or it doesn't believe we'll believe it. But, but that's the point of it. We can't even live up to even our own standards. And so in verse 16, Paul summarizes like this, all of that. And he says, this all is going to come into play on that day. The day he's referring to is the day of judgment. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says my gospel... He doesn't mean there's a variety of gospels out there. You know Paul well enough. He isn't saying, well, I've got mine, you've got yours, we'll be good. He's saying, no, 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 my gospel is, 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 is the gospel. 
He's already laid it out in verses 16 and 17. This is my gospel. This is the gospel, you see. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says that this gospel is the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's good news from God. You might remember in Galatians, when Paul is laying out his credentials to them in various ways, he speaks about this, this gospel. And he says in verse 11 of Galatians 1, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he says, this is, this is my gospel is the gospel of God. It's the gospel that I received from Jesus. And Paul says, if anybody preaches a gospel other than this gospel, he even says, even if I preach a gospel other than this gospel, let that person be, uh, be accursed. And, and Paul succinctly lays out this gospel in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, lest you believed in vain. For I delivered to you that which is of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to, to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's this gospel. When Paul speaks of my gospel, that's the gospel. But notice, he says, according to my gospel, God judges. So in the gospel is a section entitled judgment. Dear old friend of mine, now deceased, you are the right narrative used to say, we should hang out a long time in the Old Testament. And I would say, well, yeah, but why? Why do you say that? And he said, because we really, really get a glimpse of the wrath of God in the Old Testament. We get a glimpse of our sin before we get into this coming of Jesus. I go, all right, I see what you're saying. In this gospel, it's the judgment of God. If the judgment of God isn't, isn't, isn't in it, then, then, then why do we even need the gospel? Why do we even need this good news? I mean, sometimes people read this passage about the Gentiles who have this law within them and all that, and they say, well, doesn't that mean then that God is going to judge us according to the light that we have? And as long as we can obey our own conscience, then, then we'll be saved. And the answer is, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying we can't. So it even condemns us. Judgment leaves us before God, condemned. That's the first part of this gospel. And then the good news comes that there is the righteousness of God that is revealed by faith. And then notice, this judgment is 
of the secrets of men and women, the secrets of human beings. That is, that God knows our hearts. I mean, we realize that. You might remember that after Jesus healed the paralyzed man, the scripture says that he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and because he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. God, God knows us. How does, how does the psalmist put it in Psalm 139 um, in verse one? You know this passage. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. See, the Lord knows us. The Lord knows us. The, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This word of God is so powerful that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give uh, an account. And, and, and he knows our secrets, you see. His judgment will be fair. There'll be nothing that he's unable, nothing that he doesn't consider because he knows everything. And then this last bit. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, who knows everything. You see, Jesus is the judge. Remember, back in John in chapter 5, Jesus is talking to a group of people. Verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the, the Son does not honor the Father. Um, so it's Jesus, you see, who's been given judgment. In verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. It's a reference to the incarnation. If you want to say, well, well how could God judge us? He's, he, he doesn't know what it's like to be us. How can God judge us? He's so aloof. He's up there. We're here. How does he know anything? How can that be fair that this one who judges us is in heaven and we're here? And the answer is he's given the judgment to the one who's come. He's given judgment to the one who is the son of man. Who is, he's given judgment to the one who really does know. He really, he really has been tempted in every way as we are. And yet he didn't sin. So who better to judge than the one who knows and yet is wholly righteous in himself by Christ Jesus. Think for a minute. Think for a minute of the person who you can imagine in your mind who is most guilty before God. 
person you think, this person is absolutely positive, nothing <laughs> that he can offer to God and God would accept him and receive him. Do you, any, do you know anybody else like that? See, we all sinned. We all stand condemned before God. It isn't that one person is and one person isn't. It isn't that one ethnicity is and one ethnicity isn't. It isn't that one nation is and one nation isn't. It isn't one generation is and one generation isn't. It isn't that one age group is and one age group isn't. It isn't one sex that is and one sex that isn't. And so we've all sinned, you see, with or without the law. And we all stand in this judgment. The best part of this passage is the little expression, by Christ Jesus. Because yes, he's the judge and he can do it fairly because he knows everything and he knows every temptation that we've had and and yet he didn't sin and so he's the righteous one and so he should judge, but he's the very same one who then gave himself for us. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is, my, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that we are hopeless and helpless. We stand condemned before God. However, one has come and he's taken our sin upon himself and he's lived righteously so that our sins may be forgiven and his righteousness given to us. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's that very one who comes to judge. Romans 8, verse 31. Well, then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be judged by Christ Jesus is to be judged perfectly. But to be judged by Christ Jesus 
is to be judged graciously, mercifully, if you trust him. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that will enable us to see the truth, to see the truth about ourselves. That as we measure ourselves against each other, that we would realize that none of us is deserving There's a line before you. We're all on the same line. None of us above or below it. We're just all on the same line. All have the same need. Because we've all sinned. As we look at each other, we don't see ourselves as better or even worse in that matter but we see ourselves each and then all together in need of your grace. Please, I pray, as we look upon this table, as we take these elements and eat and drink, that you would grant to us a deep sense of humility and a deep gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And that you would burden us then to take the message that we know that we've been blessed with to others. And that we can live out this great hope that we have in such a way that perhaps even others would see us and inquire about the hope that we have. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.